Good morning. Uh, so you may remember last week, um, Martin had a question for us of how many Josephs there are in the Bible. Uh, and today we come to Moses, and I thought we'd go for a similar question. Um, now, there's only one Moses in the Bible, so it's not that. There's actually 12 Josephs, according to a quick Google search, but I'm not calling Martin a false teacher. No, no. <laughs> and so the question about Moses, it's not just a question, but if you get it pretty close, within 20, you get this cream egg. If you don't, then I'll have the cream egg. And so the question is, how many times is Moses mentioned in the Bible, according to Sporkle? It's a quiz site. They're really good. There's loads of Bible quizzes. You can test yourself. No, no, no. No. Uh, you're the closest so far. No, no, no. No, okay. The answer, because I want the cream egg, so I don't want any more answers. The answer is 846 times. And because it's so many times, that's why Moses, as we come to Hebrews 11, he has the longest passage out of all of them. Uh, he stars in four of the first five books. He's, he's talked about right throughout the whole of the Bible. And as we come to Hebrews, uh, we see uh, the Hebrews writer talking a little bit about some, some key decisions Moses has to make in his life. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back, you'd be welcome to have one. Uh, if you're in a church Bible, you're on page 1008. And it says this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Amen. Uh, throughout this passage, this story of Moses, uh, we see Moses who, at uh, loads of times, is faced with a pretty key decision, or Moses' parents. On the face of it, there seems like there's a really obvious route Moses should go down. All worldly wisdom would point him in one direction. Yet for Moses and his parents, they go the complete opposite. So the first decision in verse 23 is made by his parents. Uh, and it follows the king's edict. Uh, so back in the start of Exodus, uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is worried because the Hebrews, they're multiplying too fast. There's too many of them. Uh, at this stage, uh, the Hebrews, they've been in, uh, in Egypt for 300-something years. And now there's too many. So the king says, any male who's born, who's a Hebrew child, must die. They'll be thrown into the Nile. The girls can live, but the boys, all of them must die. And we react like the, the Hebrews would have done in horror, because that's a truly, truly awful thing. 
And yet it's truly a terrifying thing to act in disobedience to that. Egypt's at this stage probably the most powerful nation on the earth. This king is probably the most powerful person in all the earth. A huge army, the power to do whatever he wants. And Moses' parents, they've, they've part of a, a nation that has been slaves in Egypt for generation after generation. There's a huge army on one side and Moses' parents on the other side. And they choose to spare the baby, not because the baby is going to be super powerful. They save the baby because the baby's beautiful. And we wonder, would this Bible be a lot shorter if Moses had just been an ugly baby? But I have learned that all babies are beautiful. And the, the verse in Exodus, it doesn't, well, in our translation, it doesn't use the word beautiful. It says fine. Uh, but going back to the Hebrew word, it's actually the same word used there that God uses in Genesis as he talks about creation. Uh, so in Genesis, we have God made the heavens and the earth. God made land. God made all this stuff. And he said and he declared it was good. And to Moses as a baby, God makes that same declaration. God says, this baby is good. And even so, Moses' parents are still faced with this decision. There's the most powerful nation on earth, or what God has said about a baby. And then there's more decisions Moses has to make as he's grown up. So in verses 24 to 25, uh, we have uh, Moses who's grown up. He was plucked out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, He was raised a few years by his birth family, and then he went back to Pharaoh's household to live. In all of Egypt, there's no Hebrew child with anything like the childhood Moses had. Not even the Egyptian children would have had that level of life. The way their succession system worked, Moses could have been the pharaoh. He could have grown up to be the most powerful person in the whole world. He got to grow up not a slave, but a prince in the king's house. His life is essentially like that of a student when they go home from university. You know, they can bring their two suitcases full of washing, all their meals are cooked for them, the laundry gets done, they have heating, they can afford to have heating. And yet then, they go back to their skanky halls and they struggle to make two meals a day. Moses had it all. His life was perfect. And yet we see that Moses makes the crazy choice to leave all of that behind. To leave the most powerful nation, to potentially be the king there, to be mistreated with the people of God. The people of God, a nation that was promised hundreds of years ago, but at the moment, they're not a nation yet. They're just a group of people living in slavery. Moses leaves behind what God has called sin to join who God has called his people. And again, pretty similarly, uh, in 26, it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Uh, The phrase reproach of Christ is is kind of clunky there. Uh, One translation says suffering for the sake of Christ, which seems to make more sense. Uh, And folk debate and ponder about, well, what what is Moses' notion of the Christ? Uh, What did he know about the Messiah at the time? But what's clear is that the writer of the Hebrews sees that this suffering with the people of God is a very Christ-like action. And Moses' choice of suffering 
uh, is very similar to that undertaken by people in the New Testament. Where they have a choice of whether they become a, when they become a Christian, they'll face death, they'll face suffering and persecution. And we thought about how rich and powerful Egypt was. And Moses having this wealth of Egypt means you can have whatever you want. There's no more money you could get, no more women, no more power, no more status. Everything. Moses' heart's desire, it could just become his. Every wish that popped into his head was a yes. And Moses is crazy enough to think that suffering for Christ is worth more. The comparison doesn't really stack up. And so last time I was in Kresh, uh, little Eli was on the seesaw, and he's like little, like less than three, potentially. Um, and he was on the seesaw, but no one else was on the other side, so I thought, well, I'll go on the seesaw. I like seesaws. But obviously, straight away, I'm down here, and he's up there, and we just kind of stayed still for a few minutes. But that's the comparison made here. Suffering compared to the wealth of the greatest nation on the earth. And yet Moses say this suffering is worth more. And it says he's doing that because he is looking to the reward. As we thought last week about Joseph, and his eyes, they looked far beyond himself. He didn't just see what was in front of him, but he seed what was greater, what was coming. And Moses knew that this suffering for the sake of Christ would lead to the reward of everlasting life with Christ. And then the comparison between everlasting life with Christ and the wealth of Egypt, there is no comparison again. If life with Christ was on one side of the seesaw, the wealth of Egypt would go flying off into space. Uh, And continuing, verse 27 seems a little odd to us. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, uh, you'll remember that when Moses leaves the first time, it's because he's killed a slave beater uh, and he's terrified. And so some people debate about whether uh, the leaving in verse 27 is the first leaving after he's killed the guy or the exodus. Chronologically, it makes sense for it to be the first leaving, um, but potentially it's the second because of the fear it talks about Moses not having. But regardless which it is, Moses is still in a completely remarkable situation. He's not afraid of the anger of the king. And this anger of the king, it's not just something that would lead to a stern telling off. Moses wouldn't just have to sleep on the couch that night. The anger of the king meant certain death. The most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful army on earth. And if this pharaoh sets his mind on killing somebody, he's going to well achieve it. And so if Moses is going to flee, he's going to need something off his sleeve that's going to let him go. And yet what keeps him going, what keeps him enduring, is that he saw the invisible. And that's just impossible. The whole point of something being invisible is that you can't see it. And yet Moses is going to put his hope in seeing that. And then Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So the destroyer of the firstborn is coming, the angel of the Lord coming to kill the firstborn of all the households in Egypt. And to defend against that, Moses, what he does is he sprinkles some blood and he eats a meal. 
There's no barricades up against the door. They don't evacuate. They don't run away. They don't have smart tactics. They sprinkle blood and they eat a meal to avoid the death of their sons. And Moses comes out of Egypt. He leads his people to the Red Sea, another impossibility to get through. They can't go over it. They can't go around it. Oh, no, they've got to go through it. There's no other way. And so each step on Moses' journey, he's faced with this huge decision to make. And all wisdom, all sound thinking would push him one way. If he values, values his life, if he just looks at what's before him, it would be so easy to just follow the Pharaoh or follow maybe his own gut. And yet, when Pharaoh said something, he disobeyed. At each turn, Moses rejected the wisdom of the world because he listened to the Lord. And for Moses, it wasn't a case of he would come to each decision and then he'd have a think about whose opinion is he going to listen to this time. It wasn't, well, uh, I think this time I'll follow God because it seems a bit better, but maybe next time I'll follow Pharaoh and then maybe I'll stay safe. The question for Moses went far, far deeper than whose opinion might he listen to this time. The question for Moses was, who is your God? Who is Lord of your life? Who is controlling what you're going to do all the time? Who are you listening to? Who is your God? And consistently, Moses' first port of call is to listen to what God has said. And so God declared Moses a good baby and his parents listened to God and not the king. God declared the Hebrews as his people and so Moses joined them and fled from sin. God declared that a life with Christ is worth more than worldly wealth without him. And so Moses suffered for Christ. God declared that focusing on him, though he may be invisible, brings endurance against the fiercest tangible enemies. And so Moses fled. God commanded Moses to sprinkle the blood and to eat the meal. And so Moses did so and his sons were spared. God called Moses to cross the Red Sea. And Moses did not give up but crossed it as it was dry land. God was his God. God was Lord of his life. And that's a big question that that really strongly comes up to us as we consider what it is as a church to walk forward in faith together. As a church together, we have to wrestle with the question, who is our God? Who is Lord of this church? Who will we follow when it gets tough? And not just together, but as an individual. Who will be your God? Who will be Lord of your life? And like Moses, there's, there's two main options. Either we will have God as our God, or we will just let the world be our God. And naturally, all people defer to the idea of the world being our God. We ask how we will live, and we'll, we'll see what the world says. Follow the desires of your hearts. Embrace who you are. Become rich. Do what makes you happy. Live your best life. Or we can go the opposite way and we can have God as our God. 
Our lives can be submitted to him. We can say that in all things we will follow him. His is the voice that we are going to listen to. And if you've been around church a long time, you're probably very aware of this distinction. Uh, you know, we're often told, you know, we're, we're in the world, we're not of the world. What God says and what the world says are often going to be completely different. And so the question of who will be our God, we'd probably fairly quickly say, yes, God will be our God. But it's probably more of a danger to us, uh, and it's had a, a pretty stark impact across the church in Scotland, I think, is the idea that we'll let God be our God sometimes, and for some parts of our life, but we'll let the world be our God in others. And so we'll look at those nice bits in the Bible and we'll be all for those. We'll see where Jesus says for us to love one another, to give to the poor, uh, to be a good person. And we'll accept that Jesus loves us. We'll accept that he dies for us and that is fantastic. But there's those hard bits in the Bible that would be so much easier if we just disregarded. And the world would tell us, why would you let an old book govern who you sleep with? Why would you let an old book tell you about life in the womb or about gender or about pretty much anything? And so we pick and choose. We take the best of what God says, we take the best of what the world says, and we try and combine them. And so God is not our God then, and the world is not our God then, but something far worse. Instead, we have made ourselves our God. God isn't God, the world isn't God, but we've decided that we are God. And this isn't just a new story in the church in Scotland. This picking and choosing, it goes right back to the root of all sin that starts in the garden. Adam and Eve, they're walking with the Lord. They're enjoying his presence. They're enjoying the, the great gifts he has given them. And they stumble across this tree. And they listen to the voice of the serpent that says, Did God really say you can't eat of this tree? And then the minds go thinking. Well, we really like the stuff that God has given us. But this serpent seems to be able to offer us a lot too. And so they put themselves in charge. They say they're not going to follow God anymore. They'll take the best God bits and they'll take the best world bits and then they'll just live as they want to. They'll take God's gifts, but they'll reject his commands. And we'll take our gift of money that God gives us and we'll hoard it. We'll take our gift of sex and we'll abuse it. We'll take the gift of truth and, and we'll twist it. All of us here will we'll take God's gifts, yeah, but we'll reject his commands. We won't worship God, but instead we'll worship ourselves. We'll sin. And so as we walk forward in faith, we have to ask ourselves, in all things, who will be our God? And as a church that walks forward in faith, we're going to be asked that question a lot. By ourselves, by the world, often by the enemy, the accuser, the devil. 
And not only are these questions about the obvious things, about what does this church think uh, about homosexuality or anything like that. Because to be honest, a church that shrinks back faces those exact same questions. But if we want to be a church that walks forward in faith, the questions are probably going to look a little different. We'll be asked, what is the point of giving your money to this or committing your life to the church when 90-something percent of the world couldn't give a toss about Jesus? Or why as a church would you try and plant churches? If people wanted religion, they'd just ask for it. And you shouldn't go imposing your beliefs on people anyway. Or why would you gather to pray for stuff and not just go out and do stuff? Or why do you think you could walk forward in faith when you can hardly read your Bible for a couple of minutes a day? Or why do you think you could walk forward in faith when for years you've been battling a sin and there's nothing you seem to be able to do that gets you out of it? Or why don't you just leave evangelism to the experts or the extroverts? Why don't you just keep your faith to yourself and then you won't lose all your friends? Why not give up on this whole going forward bit and just shrink back? God will forgive you anyway, sure. Why would God choose to use someone like you? And so we've got to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? What voices will hold the most sway in our lives? Who will be our Lord? Who will be our God? And the good news that is in Jesus Christ, we don't have a God who looks down uh, on this battle with these voices in some kind of snobbery thinking, how could these people suffer with this? Uh, we have instead, we have a king who knows exactly that temptation. And we have a king who for us uh, is hanging on the cross. And he's obeyed the will of the Father, he's gone to the cross, he's walking forward in faith, he knows it's a good thing, he knows that the cross is the only way for him to offer salvation to all people. And yet, as he's on the cross, one voice cries out and says, If you're the son of God, save yourself. And this is Jesus at his most vulnerable. He's been beaten and tortured. Many people who thought he was um, the best news they've ever heard about have deserted him and fled. He's near enough alone. He's been spat on by people he came to save. And someone says, if you're the son of God, save yourself. The excruciating pain, it could just be over. With a word, Jesus could just crush his enemies and get down. His life could have been simpler, easier. And yet we have a King Jesus who did not listen to the world when it said those things. We have a King Jesus who, when it got tough, he pressed on, he, he finished his job on that cross because he loves you. And so he says to you now, all those times you're tempted to listen to the world and not to God, I forgive you for those. There is now no condemnation for you. 
And when it gets really tough and you don't seem to have the strength to keep walking forward in faith, I will be the one that carries you. And when the whole world seems to be against you, you don't need to fear because I am on your side. And we have this magnificent display of love. We have Jesus standing strong against the world. And then soon after we see the disciples. They've just seen it. And yet the disciples shrink back. They're afraid. The disciples are are hiding themselves locked in a room. They'd heard what Jesus had said. They'd heard that he'd suffer and then rise again. They'd listened to what God had said. But all that was within them, all common sense just led them to hide instead. And then the women, they go to Jesus' tomb. Uh, They're thinking they're going to go and see a dead body. So they're afraid too. They've shrunk shrunk back. But they're less afraid than the disciples. And because they don't shrink back, they get to be the first ones to meet the risen Jesus. They are the first ones to hear the beautiful words that he is not here, he is risen. And because they did not listen completely to the world, they got the opportunity to be the first ones to tell the world that Jesus is risen. It, would have, it was so much easier to just be like a disciple and shrink back in fear. Uh, to think with your own brain, well, well, we thought Jesus was the one, but he is dead now. And I know he said he'd come back to life, but that's just not, that just doesn't happen. And for us as a church, uh, we could look at the, church, the decline in the church in Scotland. We could say, oh, the church is dying or the church is dead. And it'd be very easy to hide back and just, and just shrink from that. You know, we, we've got a nice building. We could have a nice service and sing nice songs. All the rotors could be filled. And it'd be so easy. But if we only listen to that, then we will miss the opportunities God has given to us. We'll miss the chance uh, as we go out from this place to call a city and a nation and a whole world to worship the true God. We'll miss the chance to proclaim the beautiful news that Jesus Christ died, was raised, uh, sin is defeated, and death is no more. That Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So Moses, he had God as his God, and he rejected the world. And he did it by faith. It wasn't that Moses could, could do all that by his own strength. It wasn't that he was super brave. He wasn't just lucky. Uh, he didn't have some kind of blissful ignorance. No, he stood against the world by faith. By faith, the way that we are saved And it's not just that faith puts us onto the kind of Christian track. It's faith is the vehicle that carries us the whole way. And so if we just want to rely on our own strength to to look at the world, to look at God, and to, to follow God all the time, and our own strength will fall miserably short. In fact, we'll completely fail. And the world will come at us with all its temptations and and we'll run towards it. But living by faith means that we have the spirit of Christ in us. Christ who on the cross that is most vulnerable, rejected the world, but kept going. It's not just our example, but that spirit of that is living inside us. 
If you are a Christian, if you have become in Christ, Christ lives in you. And so it's no longer a question of, well, uh, I'm tempted by sin, so obviously I'm going to sin. Obviously I'm going to shrink back. No, it's a, it's a question of, you can follow God. You can walk forward in faith as Moses did. You can reject the foolishness of the world and worship the true God. By faith, God can be your God. And so I'm going to pray in a second, but I'd love it if we took some time to reflect on the question of who will be our God. But not just from a stance of, yeah, okay, in my mind, I realize that God is God and I'm going to, going to worship him. I'd love for you to reflect on what answer does your life give? If your life was laid out before you and the question came, who is your God? What would the answer be? And I'd love as I pray and maybe as we sing the next song for you to reflect on that. But let me pray now. Lord, we, we confess that so often um, we hear your voice um, but we think that the world just shouts louder. We choose to completely go our own way. To live purely as we want to live. But we, we ask now uh, and forevermore that, that you truly will be our God. Uh, in, our, in our heads as we think about it and in our lives and in our hearts as we live it. And Lord, thank you that uh, you are not a God who looks down uh, with snobbery on us struggling with this. But that we have a King Jesus who has walked right through it. Lord, thank you that you have given us uh, your spirit. Thank you that it keeps us going uh, to be able to proclaim day after day that you are our God. May that be ever so. Amen.